0: It does something to lift our voices up together and come before the Lord and worship as a group, doesn't it? It's uh, it's one of those things where you hear a lot. We, we mostly hear it in the warmer months, but we hear it a lot here in Maine. I don't need a building to worship God. God's creation is everywhere, and so there's certainly aspects of that, and we get to see the Lord's creation everywhere. But it does something to us when we come together and form the body. And we lift up the the name of the Lord with unified voices and, and reflect on the truth, be encouraged by each other's faces and stuff. And so worship just takes on a new aspect. It's not about us, but we get to benefit from being together too. It's strange how that works. It's going to come into play with what we're talking about in 2 Corinthians 8 this morning. But before we get there, I just wanted to mention that I've had several people ask me um, if we were going to put some information out about the... um the vote that's coming up on Tuesday. And uh, we certainly have out at the pedestal table. that's out in the entryway. Our partners at Christian Civic League in Maine um, have provided us with some information about um, these topics and, and in which way that the, uh, the scriptures lean and that kind of thing. And so I'd encourage you if you're not brushed up on uh, what's coming down on Tuesday, that you go and get that uh, you know what the Lord cares about is the, uh, the, The participation of God's people as stewards of what he has entrusted to us, but also the preparation on our parts. What do we do when results either go the way they that we want them to go or they don't? Because that's what's, you know, well, most elections go one way or the other. (laughs) Some get hung up in court for a while and things. But for the most part, it's either going to go one way or the other. And so the people of faith are called to be prepared for the next day. And uh, that is honestly what I believe the gospel calls us to, is to strengthen ourselves, to position ourselves to be faithful, regardless of which way things go in the country that he's blessed us in. And so that becomes our, our gospel call that we want to adhere to. So be praying about that. Participate for sure as, as stewards of the um of the uh country that the Lord has given us. But also continue to trust the Lord Jesus is in control of it all. He has mission and duty and and, and worship for us all. He has all of these things of the life of, of believers to continue to move forward. So we keep those things in perspective. If I said to you, I'm standing in front of you, and I said that some of these things would come into play as we get into 2 Corinthians 8, if I said, I feel like everyone's watching me, you'd go, yes, we all are. So do something with that. Don't stall this out, dude. Come on. We've got lunch to to be had and everything, so let's move along. But if I'm in a crowd of people and everyone's kind of distracted doing their own thing and I stop you and I say, I feel like everyone's looking at me, you start questioning my sanity. And you're wondering if I'm really got it all together, because clearly not everyone's looking at you. There is a difference in context between whether or not that statement is healthy or paranoid. And I believe what Paul is going to illustrate for us today is the healthier side of acknowledging, yes, I'm being watched and then coming to a place where I'm okay with that instead of resistant to that, which I think is one of our greater challenges as believers in Jesus Christ Last week, we started talking about how generosity plays into this because Paul has a project. Paul has a goal in mind. He's going to raise funds from the Corinthians to join with the funds that have already been raised by the Macedonian churches, and he wants to put those together so that they can present them to the poor that are in Jerusalem. So Paul is trying to get them to see, as we get into this text this morning, that people are watching. Paul's even going to subtly demonstrate he understands that people are watching him. So we're going to break that down a little bit and figure out what all of this means. But the point that we made last week that I wanted you to take home was that God's generous heart is demonstrated through God's generous people. That apart from God's generous people taking part in the thing that the Lord would be leading them to, people don't get to see how much God cares. So it's important for us to demonstrate the heart of the one who has rescued us. We know what his heartbeat is. We know what he cares about. It's up to us then to kind of see that through and to walk that out. Paul had shared with his readers the uh, incredible example of the Macedonian churches. There were several churches that he was intimately acquainted with, that he was serving with. He was struggling with them, suffering with them. They were scraping the bottom of the barrel dirt poor. And he said they they heard the call to, to contribute and participate in the giving, and they came and they met that need according to their ability, which we could say it was probably just a little. But then he goes, and then they came back and they blew me away because they went beyond or even contrary to their ability to give what they presented. Remember we said that we imagined the dialogue between Paul and the Macedonian churches because they were so compassionate, they were so earnest and eager to do this. That Paul might have said something like, I appreciate the heart behind this, but I know what you guys live off and you can't do this. And their simple response would have been, Paul, we understand what their suffering looks like because we go through it. We you can't stop us from doing this. We care about them because we relate to their need. They discovered the secret that giving away what we don't rightfully own is freeing because it starts to detach us from the cares of this world. Everything we can see, everything we experience, all the pressures that we experience throughout our lives. And we become so anchored into this kingdom of of what's on the earth that we forget that we are called to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of a kingdom that is promised to us for all of eternity. And letting go of these resources and freeing ourselves up of that begins to build in us a detachment of those things that are in this world. So therefore, it's just a good, simple exercise to live heavenly. Paul also gave us the incredible example of Jesus as our gospel kind of focus here in Second Corinthians 8 9. The scripture says, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. He explained to us there was an exchange there that Jesus was in the place that he deserved to be. He was hearing the the glory and and the fame and the honor of all the things that his majesty was worthy of. And yet for our sakes, he traded that in for poverty. And we had made the application that so much of what we do is given from abundance, which is good. There's nothing wrong with that. But in terms of understanding the call of the gospel and relating to what Jesus did for us, that we need to find those places of sacrifice and lean into those a little bit more. Press into those opportunities so that in relationship to Christ, we learn to give from sacrifice, not just our abundance. So this isn't, as you would know, the only part of the scriptures that money or or charity or grace or any of those things are talked about. Of course, the scriptures are loaded with wisdom, with warnings, encouragements, all of those things regarding money because it's so near and dear to our hearts. Last week, we said you didn't get here apart from some form of expense. You aren't clothed today apart from some form of expense. Your plans for the rest of the day or the week do not uh, negate the expense that is required for us to do those things. And so it, it touches every part of our life. So therefore, we need to get a biblical handle on what we are to do and how we are to see these resources that the Lord's blessed us with. You'll no doubt know the warnings from Luke 12, 34. It says where your treasure is there will your heart be also. Or what Paul says to Timothy in First Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Hebrews thirteen five. keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those are just a sampling of some of the warnings that the scriptures have given us about how we use our finances. But it's also a positive side of this, too. Not just to be sure you don't do this, but also move forward and do these things. What we would say are encouragements. Deuteronomy 15, 10. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and all that you will undertake. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Acts twenty thirty five. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those are our encouragements to continue doing the right things with all that the Lord has blessed us with, because our conduct with money reveals the condition of our hearts. So many preachers have said over the years, And I've heard them say it a million times, and I'm going to steal it right from them because I think it's a worthy question. If we were to go and look back at your checkbook register, now I'm a halfer. I'm I'm kind of a hybrid. I do online banking in a paper check register. I just haven't fully committed. I haven't jumped over. I guess I need to see some of that in print. But all right, how many of you are hybrids like me? Okay. Anybody fully online? Okay. What are your passwords? We can share those, right? (laughs) How many of you have never done any online banking? Come on, admit it. Yeah, I love it. It's like a, a smattering. It's almost like 33% for all three uh, options there. If we were to take a look and see how we've spent our money, you could say the same thing with our calendar. If you were to go back and backfill the way you spend every minute or every hour of the day, those things begin to reveal what you care about. They get. They begin to reveal what you prioritize. In the small house, if you were to go back and look through all of our checkbook registers, you'd see we prioritize milk. We drink a lot of milk. So uh, to go back to the Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament times, if anyone has a cow they want to give to the pastor, <laughs> I would appreciate that. I've got a spot in the garage. I can hold them up. You look at all sorts of things and you could say, I don't intend to care about those things, but they just keep showing up. Or they keep demanding my attention or my expenses or things. And sometimes we got to look at those and say, is it matching the priorities of the heart that the Lord's putting in me? You can see this is a complicated subject. Our conduct with money reveals the condition of our hearts. Getting back to the point of the text, what Paul is trying to accomplish is a mission of giving. It's a, it's a mission of grace. It's an administration, in his words, of grace. It's an act of grace. And so he wants to see this project through. And if we're being honest, we get uh, inundated with all kinds of requests of worthwhile projects. Being in ministry and being in our offices day in and day out, everybody on staff here, we're constantly trying to fine-tune our ability to weed through what is worthy of the church entertaining and which things we have to pass on. You get this in your own mailboxes and TV commercials and all these kinds of things that it isn't so much that there's a lack of good causes, it's almost like there's too many. And so how are we going to help the real need? And I think it's important for us as a church to understand that there's some things that we'll be tempted to do because we get the pat on the back for it. There's some things that we do that become very obvious to those looking that we can feel good about being who we are. And then there's other things that we have to do that are a little bit more difficult call that maybe we won't get the accolades. We might even get a little criticism for either partaking in or not partaking in a particular cause. So we need wisdom in these areas. I know I do as I'm evaluating some of these things about um, what is it that the direction of the church is going to be, in particular in the area of global missions where so many of our global mission opportunities are involved with things of financial poverty because living in America, we don't understand what's going on in other parts of the world. And so, to match Paul's uh, intent here, we'd have to say that we're to be representing the Christ's heart of compassion; that we're trying to meet the real need that's before us. We're demonstrating our faith in eternity; that we don't hold on to these things on earth. But we're going to need real wisdom to know when to engage and how to engage. So, I was reading in the last couple of weeks a book called "When Helping Hurts," and uh, it's written by a man named Steve Corbett. And he is trying to help people in our situation identify what the real need is and what the gospel really addresses, and then helping us to, to, to understand what our real role is in all of these things. In other words, all compassionate ministry needs to keep in mind what real poverty looks like. It sometimes is going to involve financial poverty and sometimes can be masked by the lack of financial poverty. So he identifies four areas for us to look for. I found these quite helpful to look for poverty in spiritual intimacy. That means as people or nations or cultures deny the existence of God and give themselves over to materialism to fill that void. Cause we were all created to worship something. So we're really good at making these little false gods. So we might walk into places that are impoverished financially or loaded in abundance financially and find that same level of poverty existent how do we address that how do we minister to that a poverty of being which can be seen on two different extremes we have some people in particular in nations and governments where a god complex is seen as i rule with an iron fist and we get to govern everything that uh, is going on in this country based on being in charge and being in power and everybody else is subject to our whims and our in our leanings which creates a low view of self-worth in the people of those nations In those cultures, they're used for exploitation and other things of slavery. We see that also in a community, in a uh, poverty of community where people are engulfed in self-centeredness. Tell me if this sounds at all like the neighborhoods you live in or the places you work or the country we live in, that we've become so self-absorbed that we use other people and things for our use and our good and our pleasure as opposed to giving into that community, building into that community. Instead, we seek it for a take for ourselves, a poverty of stewardship, where even wealthy people will see a loss of purpose. We don't understand what we should be doing with our time, with our, our talents, our treasures. We don't understand all the dollars that I'm earning, what they should be go for, because I, I've bought into this mindset, if I earned it, I should be able to spend it the way I want. Or others, on the other hand, will say, I'm I'm not feeling like getting off the couch because other people are here to take care of me. Either way is a form of materialism that comes from an absolute void of stewardship. You see how the gospel moves into these areas and these problems and deals with it at its core level so that if you and I just throw a hundred bucks at something, we may not necessarily be helping the situation. But the temptation for us sometimes is to say, since I don't know the facts, I can't part with my money. And sometimes it's a good exercise to let it go anyway. What kind of wisdom are you going to tap in? How, how, how is the Lord going to guide you in these kinds of things so that you'll know which things do I participate in and which don't I? Getting back to the statement of everybody's looking at me. Our takeaway point today is that the Christian life is a life on display. The world is watching how we handle these opportunities. The world is watching how we step into these needs and what we're going to do about them. We're going to see Paul demonstrate that true disciple makers are intentionally transparent. In other words, if I'm trying to disciple you, I want you to see how I'm doing these things, for good or bad. This text that we're going to be in is just one brief paragraph. There aren't a lot of to do's in there. It was a little bit weird for me to approach it this week and trying to figure out how we're going to teach through it. Because he's not saying, I want you to do this. I want you to go off and do that. Instead, he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. Paul is saying, I'm on the line here. You all are watching me. This is my integrity on the line. I want you to see how I'm going to do this. And so what we're going to do is hear his description, his plan, and then extract some principles based on what he's spelling out for us here. So as we get to chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, we're going to just read 16 and 18 and jump down to 22. And the first point, if you're following along in your notes, is this, is that Paul was finding that confidence is worth instilling in those that, he, that were watching him. He thought this was a worthwhile venture to build confidence in them about his plans. Let's go to verse 16 together. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. Let me stop there for a second. This is important because Titus was the dude that Paul sent on the mission to go deliver the hard letter to go deal with them and kind of be offensive to them and and hope that there's restoration and all these things. And so it was a big deal for for Titus to get a God-given heart attitude of compassion for these people. And you can hear the relief in Paul when he was like, oh, so thankful he got the mission. I'm so thankful he, he engaged in it. And this is how he describes it. He says in verse 17, not only did he accept our appeal, but being himself very earnest He's going to you of his own accord and very earnest means because earnest is it's got something to do with speed kind of tenacity. Like I want to do this. I want to get going. Don't hold me back. Paul says he was even very earnest. He was like, Paul, you're slowing me down. Let me go. I want to help these people. Paul, of course, was greatly relieved by Titus's heart that the Lord had given him for them. Verse 18. He says with him, We are sending a brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. What a great thing to be famous for. He doesn't even have a name. We don't even know the name. There's several options. Commentators have pointed us back to acts. Could be this dude, this dude, this, all these really cool Greek names. Nobody knows. And Paul says, the preacher is coming. The dude is coming. The guy that you can't wait to see. And they're all like, all right, that's cool. And I think it's interesting when you see what Paul is saying here is he's like, there is a guy that is so famous for preaching the truth. I don't even have to name him. You guys are going to be excited to hear him. And don't think I don't know you've already knocked my preaching skills. So you're looking forward to having, I get it. I get it. He's going to be a great treat to you. Fine. You can have him. Verse 22. And with them, these two guys, Titus and the famous guy, the preacher, the dude, And with them, we are sending our brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. But who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, I want to go back to this guy because I really want to pump him up some more. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, these other two guys, they are messengers of the churches. They are the glory of Christ. You can trust them. You can celebrate their arrival. You can look forward to having them. These guys, you know, already their, their, their assemblies have approved them, have voted for them. Yep. We believe these guys to be trustworthy in the manner of handling these finances and going, doing this special project as an envoy for Paul. In fact, one might call them as they set out on this quest the fellowship of the offer ring. I'll let that one sink in for a second. I promised the elders I wouldn't share more than one Lord of the Rings reference per month. I can see Don over there clicking. He's just making sure and you get one. What we see here in Paul's explanation is really a demonstration Yeah, he's telling them his plans, this is what we're going to do, but he's demonstrating something to him. He wants us to read between the lines. He wants us to watch his conduct, because we're all watching, to see how he handles this. This is much more about the Corinthian security in the handling of their money that they're going to be sending to people they may have never met in a land they can't see. They won't have a video feed on YouTube or anything like that to prove that it arrived. This is much more about Paul giving the confidence to the people that he's asking them to step up. He's holding them accountable to their, their call of salvation. If you really believe this, this is how you'll show up. This is what you'll do. But at the same time, he's going through these great pains to demonstrate to them, I care about what you need as well. And I don't expect you to just trust me, point blank. It was important for Paul to instill confidence in these folks instead of doing something that looked a little bit more like showing up as the big guy, being the apostle. We've already solved this for the first seven chapters. You guys weren't looking at me as an apostle, but bam, I nailed it. Now I'm the apostle. Here's what we're going to do. Open up your wallets, empty out your pockets. Let's get this thing done. He doesn't do that. He says, listen, I I want you to know we're going to be very, very careful with your money. I want you to know that I'm sending Titus ahead of time for you to get to know him so you can trust him. I want you to see how big his heart is for you and for the poor in Jerusalem and how much he appreciates the Macedonians gift and how this is all just piling in. I want you to feel comfortable with this process. I'm sending to you also a guy that you can't wait to hear from. And I'm also sending you somebody that's been approved by the other churches, has been tested in all these ways, and he's proven just as eager for this as anybody else. This is more about what Paul believes the Corinthians need for their security as it seems to be for the other things. I also love just from a a management standpoint, this part challenges me because Paul is on record for saying, I believe that this entire collection is going to be such an incredible testimony to the world watching. You're going to see the Greeks raising money that they don't necessarily in the world's eyes have to give up, but because they feel compelled by the grace that they've been shown, they're going to send that money to believing Jews who are poor in the streets of Jerusalem. And then someday, as we heard last week, someday, if the need is ever needed, is, is ever apparent, they'll reciprocate and they'll come back and help the people in Corinth or in Achaia. And the world's going to watch and see Jews and Greeks supporting one another as they found forgiveness at the foot of the cross. It's a massive project. This is a massive uh, testimony to the community. And what Paul is doing instead, and this is the part that intrigues me, is he's not micromanaging it. He's letting the body of Christ handle it. You've heard my call. You know what the mission is. You guys can figure this out. I trust these guys to get it done. Corinthians, I trust that you have a heart that is engaged in this. He said at the end of chapter seven, I have full confidence in you. It's incredibly trusting on Paul's part to, to practice what he's preaching on something that he cares so much about that he's been preparing for years to see this through. And when it's time to it, he says, I don't even need to be there to superintend this. The Lord's got this confidence is worth instilling in those who are watching. And that comes oftentimes by building them up as capable of doing the ministry as well. This wasn't just for one apostle to see through Holy spirit lived in all these people. The second point that we can extract is that our reputation, as was Paul's, is worth protecting. Paul had his critics. There weren't a bunch of them in this particular church. I, I don't want you to get the impression from the last seven chapters that we've been studying since last year that the whole church was just angry at Paul and nobody liked him and everything. We really started with a handful of whispers. It started with a few people to just sow some seeds of doubt. And then they, it just it just meant that a lot of people lost confidence in Paul because of these questions and he's going to deal with these questions coming up in the in the future chapters in particular in chapter 12 as he's setting his targets on the whispers he's setting his aim on them he's going to do business with those of you that were guilty for infecting the body of christ how much damage you've done but for now what he's going to say to those that are on his side and are listening is seen in verse 19. He says, and not only that, but he going back to Titus, his, his brother, his fellow worker has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. Paul's giving them the idea. Keep in mind, folks, we're not losing sight. God's the one who gets the fame for this. This isn't going to be the great, you know, Pauline uh, collection of whatever year this is going to be the act and the glory of God through and through verse 20. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift. And what he's saying by we take this course, keep in mind, it's like he's laying out an option. He's he's not saying I just headed down the road in front of me. He's saying I had an option. I could have gone over here. I could have been the Apostle Paul who you feel so guilty about beating up on. I could have played your heart like a like a violin. And I could have said, now that you feel bad for beating us up, don't you think you owe these people some money? Let's come on, let's show up. Empty the pockets, let's go. And dare I remind you the authority that I have as the Apostle. He says, I had that road to go down. I avoided that instead. He says, I took this path instead. We take this course. So that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we take aim, or it could other, otherwise be worded, we take great pains at what, at, at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. People are watching. Now, before we get too critical of the Corinthians, for maybe doubting Paul or accusing him because there was, there was there was a little bit of room for them to try to figure out what's going on here. Paul never asks us for money for himself. He raises money, but he doesn't ask it for him. And yet he's still getting by. He's eating food and he's wearing clothes and that kind of thing. So that part of that whisper campaign is he's skimming a little off the top. He just hasn't told you. And all it takes is just a little bit of doubt to be planted. And all of a sudden somebody's reputation is upended. But that isn't the only way that these things happen. I mean, there's history, right? Ministries across the globe, and especially in the last several decades, have been accused of mismanaging funds and finances and have been caught red-handed to where people's confidence in the way these ministries are handling the funds and doing all those kinds of things. There's valid questions that go into that, and we bear the burden of having to keep our reputation untainted in order to combat some of those fears, Churches and ministries in the past have been abusive, maybe even currently. Well, not maybe there's current abuse going on in ministry when it comes to handling funds and finances, because leadership starts to get autonomous. They start to say, I'm the spiritual guru. I'm the one that hears the voice of the Lord and what he told me we need to do. And if you doubt me, if you question me, if you say that doesn't really look like a good expense or worthwhile, or is the Lord? Really? You can't question me because then you don't have enough faith. So we see that kind of abuse happening in ministry. We see others that maybe aren't as guilty as that kind of ego-driven, but they're a little bit more aloof, a little bit hands-off. They see that financial matters are icky. They're not very spiritual. You know, God sees our hearts. He'll work it all out and everything. Not a big deal. So it's a little bit distant from the practice instead of diving in and saying, how are we going to do this right and do it well? And then you have flat-out negligence. You have ministries all over the place who don't want to research how to handle funds better. They don't listen to the voice of their congregation. They don't put wise people in place and in charge of these kinds of things because uh, it just doesn't seem like the work that God wants us to do. We're supposed to preach. We're supposed to sing. We're supposed to evangelize. The money will uh, work itself out. When I first came here, uh, years ago, early, early 2000s, I was so relieved. I was so comforted by faith's financial practices when I heard that we spent thousands of dollars on outside audits from trusted, reliable accountants that signed off on our, on our financial practices. But in areas that they had questions for us because they spend a week here on site and ask us for all kinds of receipts and answers and all this kind of stuff. And at the end, their report might say, we, we recommend you do this differently or you think about doing X, Y, and Z, and then we get together as a team and figure out which recommendations fit our model and which ones we'll do and that kind of thing. And it's and it's so encouraging to see that the church thinks that that's so important, have their seal of approval that's outside of us, that we can say it's not just us saying we're handling it. You can trust us. But you can actually see from them that we're doing this the right way. I was encouraged to be a part of finance teams' uh, budget meetings every single month, preparing for a public budget review that comes once a year where people in the congregation are allowed to ask questions about particular line items and things. I was encouraged to see that when somebody gives money to the church in sincerity and wanting to see something done with it in particular, if it's not something that our mission is focused on right now, or it's not something we entertain, we go back to that person and say, we don't want to mislead you. We're not planning to use the funds in that way. You can have them back with no shame. We don't mind sending you the check back or anything. If you want to go and give to that cause directly, you can do that outside of faith. But right now we're not in that. And I thought that that was healthy in communication as opposed to that. What I've seen so often of like, sure, we'll make sure it gets somewhere around there. There's integrity to it. And I was also encouraged to see that the pastors are just part of the same teams. That we might have ideas or dreams or plans, but it has to it has to hold up uh, to the scrutiny of others that have been entrusted with the care of God's funds and resources that you in all faith give and contribute. This is what John Calvin said so many years ago. There's nothing that so leaves a man open to sinister insinuation as the management of public funds. Thus, the higher the position we occupy, the greater our need to imitate carefully Paul's circumspection and modesty. Paul thought it was important to prove that he was above board, but his conscience was clear. He told his listeners in acts 24, 16 and 17. I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. Paul took their criticism seriously and went above and beyond to prove his motives. The last principle we'll extract from this is that the mission is worth completing. Paul reminds the Corinthian believers. He lays it on a little bit heavy here. He's been gracious and gentle with them. Verse 24. So give proof. Give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Prove your love. Back it up. It's consistent with what Jesus said in John fourteen fifteen: If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Even Jesus himself said, don't just tell me, show me. A couple of years ago, we studied in James, if your faith doesn't have works, it's dead, it's empty. There's no proof of your love. And so he says to the Corinthians, see it through, help these people out. And then I love this. He's, and then he kind of says, help me out here because I stuck my neck out for you. Make sure my boasting is justified. I couldn't believe when we were restoring our relationship and you had repented and you started rebuilding and you started following my lead again. I was so excited. I started telling the Macedonians. I even started telling the, those in Jerusalem. And everything. I wanted people to know the Corinthians are on board. Don't make me a liar. Just a little bit of reminder to them as he tightens the screws. So let's make some concluding uh, applications here. Some questions. Based on Paul's demonstration, we need to ask ourselves, do we see what others need more than what we think we deserve? I deserve to not be questioned. I deserve to not be doubted. I deserve to not be followed up on. Paul didn't take that approach. He said, I I understand why they're asking the question. I understand why I have to go above and beyond to prove it because they're weaker. They need to be led up. They need to be grown up. And that's what I'm here for. I'm here to do that with them, not to be the big cheese. He also says, would you, or we might also ask, would you do the hard work of proving your character to those who question it? Isn't it hard to get over the initial offense of being questioned Especially when you know you're right or you haven't done anything wrong and people are like, well, what were you thinking about when you did that? And he's like, how dare you ask me? We have, we are born with such independence that the fact that anybody would even question our existence and we're like, where do you get off? Maybe you're hearing this text and you're seeing Paul's demonstration and you're like, no, no, no. I do not have that position at all. I'm embarrassed about how I've conducted myself in these areas. I do not have the integrity that I wish I had when it comes to putting my money where my mouth is or proving my love for others by giving and doing all those kinds of things. Well, then the question becomes, will you move beyond just feeling guilty about that and sharing that with somebody else? I Dare I use the ugliest word in church circles? Accountable? You mean... Talk to somebody else about it. Ask them to hold me up to it. A couple weeks ago, we saw in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. Solomon says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though a man might prevail against one who is alone tool withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken so if what i care about more is the end result if what i care about more is the glory of god if what i care about more is the provision for others then i'll eat some humble pie and say to somebody i need to be held accountable i have friends that have walked into um uh uh buying a car with me i was trying to think of what you call that you call it buying a car i guess Because, you know, I will be honest with you. I'm at the point where I have, I don't think I've ever paid cash for a car. And I commend those of you that do. And I, but I at least said, I am not walking out of here with a, with a monthly payment that is above this line. And I know I needed that accountability because I get emotionally invested in a vehicle. I love cars. (laughs) And I remember this one particular time when I was buying that yellow Jeep that some of you had seen. I'm like, oh man. So I said, dude, you got to come with me. Because if I walk in there, they can name their price, and I'll walk out of there paying it. Help me walk away from this if it's not right. Here's what uh, James Denny says in his commentary on this book. What folly and what disdain for the name of Christ. We too readily trust ourselves. We have too much faith in our own honesty. Many have ruined themselves by too much trust in their own integrity. Last question, and we'll wrap up. Do we care enough about the name of Christ or the need of others? Or do we care enough about our own need of grace that we will commit to live our lives before others and give of our resources in order to be who we say we are. These are difficult questions and I do not claim to have mastered them. So we need to go through this journey together, this introspection and let the Holy spirit do what he's going to do in our lives and in our midst. Would you please stand? We'll close our time together. Lord God, I thank you, Father, for the patience of your people. Lord, these are difficult subjects for us to ponder. It's hard to not listen from a defensive standpoint. But thank you, Lord, for being gracious to us. Thank you, Lord, for helping us loosen our grip just a little bit on our hearts, allowing your spirit to take more investment, allowing your spirit to have more ownership In our lives, Lord, we know that we find freedom when we give you more and more. So help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to experience that joy. But, Lord, help us to walk in wisdom. Help us to use the wisdom that you've given us to be most effective, to meet the real needs that are presented around us, Lord. Not to just make this a conversation about money. Lord, help us to live deeper lives than that. Lives of obedience and trust and walking in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.